It's a season of Lent. It's a season that leads up to Easter where we intentionally prepare our hearts to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And as part of that season, throughout the history of the church, Christians have done this thing where they give up something. They give up something good. They give up something in their life that maybe they've been tempted to lean on or rely on or turn to for security or, or pleasure. And they don't, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but we give that thing up in order to try to lean on and rely on Christ more, in order to like turn to him more often in our lives. So um, we kind of decided we're going to do this together as a family. If you didn't do it, it's not a shame or guilt deal. But a lot of you did give us up something for Lent, right? And I'm just saying, how's it, how's it going? I mean, how's giving up sugar? Are you just, I mean, are you closer to Jesus or do you just miss sweets? That's what I want to know. And, you're, and sometimes you're like, I'm not sure, but hopefully in the end, God will use it. Um, our scripture today is going to be read by the none other than the Karen America, Miss America, as I like to call her. And um, you gave up something for Lent, right, Karen? Did you? Well, I always say I, I'm not a sweet person. You're not a sweet person. Okay, good. Yeah. So you're so doing I'm trying. You're I'm trying. trying to that's not good. be sweet. You're trying to not be sweet. Okay. So that's that's the confession and and uh, you're confessing that it's, it's hard. Yeah. Very. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. Well, hey, before Karen reads our scripture today, I want to let you know that we are continuing this morning in our series called Intention. In this series, we're walking through the last 7 moments in the life of Christ the last seven moments in the Gospel of Mark. And today we're going to kind of dive into the tension, get into the experience of this moment called the crucifixion. The moment when Jesus is actually nailed to and hung up on a cross. And so we're going to dive right in today. We're going to get into our passage. It's a long passage. And this morning, instead of asking you to pull out your Bibles or grab one out of the pew racks or even follow along on the screen, Here's my invitation today. As Karen reads our passage, I want to invite you to just close your eyes and to try to be in the moment, to imagine what's happening, to try and hear the words, hear who Mark is telling us is there. Listen to the words that he intentionally chooses to describe this scene for us so that we can be there as much as possible. So Karen, Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 32. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple rope on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man of Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what they each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. 
the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped themselves on him. Here ends the reading. Thank you, Karen. Today, as we dive into this passage, I want to talk about three things. First, the setting and the characters. What is the scene? What is happening here? What is the vibe? What is the tenor? Who's there? Second, I want to talk about where we see ourselves in this scene. How can we relate to this moment? How can we here and now relate to what is happening then? And then finally, I want to ask, what do we learn? What is the message of this passage? What do we take away from this place, from this story, as we seek to live our lives in this world that we live in now? And so let's start with the first question, the scene. Because Mark paints it for us very carefully. This is not a peaceful death for Jesus. When we think about loved ones, people we love dying, what we most want for them is a peaceful death. This is anything but that for Jesus. In fact, this entire scene is very intentionally constructed by the Romans to be anything but peaceful. The road that Jesus is forced to walk to the hill where he'll be crucified is not a short one. It's a long one. It would have wound through and all throughout the streets of Jerusalem, ending just outside the city on top of a hill. And this whole thing, this whole parade was done intentionally to ensure as many people saw him as possible. The sign that Mark tells us hung over Jesus on the cross was most likely carried in front of him or even hung around his neck as he's paraded through the city. And the idea here, the message, is that Rome wants as many people as possible to understand that this is what happens to people who challenge our ruling authority. This is what happens to rebels, they're saying. So if you're even thinking about rebellion, if you're even considering revolt or revolution, you had better think again because this will be your fate too. Along the way, along the winding roads, because of the tremendous beatings and abuse that Jesus has already suffered, he is unable to carry his own cross. And so... In verse 21, we're told a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. It's amazing how much we can learn about this one man from a single verse. Simon is a Jewish name, a Hebrew name, and Cyrene is a town on the North African coast, on the Mediterranean Sea, in what is now modern-day Libya. 
And we know from history that there was a settlement of Jews living in Cyrene during this time. And so Simon, this Jewish man, all the way from Cyrene, has come to Jerusalem. Why? For Passover. He's made this long journey. Do not let this fact be lost on you, friends. This is a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience for Jewish people. They longed to celebrate Passover someday in Jerusalem. And this may not seem like a long trip by our standards, but in the ancient world, to make this journey would have been a very timely and costly one. And so Simon is either someone of significant financial means. He's either wealthy or, or most likely, he has saved for this trip for a very, very long time. The visiting crowds in Jerusalem are so great because so many have come from so far away that people are no longer able to live in the city. They can't stay there, and so they've spilled out into the country. This is where Simon is, why, and this is why on Friday he comes in from the country to make preparations for his Passover meal that night. And yet, in the middle of his trip, in the middle of his preparations, he hears hears commotion. And so, like so many others, he goes down to the street to see what's happening. And as Jesus walks past, suddenly Simon is grabbed, pointed to, tapped on the shoulder by a Roman spear. We don't know, but we do know this. All of a sudden, Simon's world changes. And he is thrust himself into this horrific, bloody, and brutal scene. Now he'll have to carry Jesus' cross. Now he'll be the one to lug it all the way up the hill outside of the city. Mark tells us this hill is named Golgotha, the place of the skull. Now some of you are thinking, I thought Jesus was crucified on Calvary. I've, heard, I've, sung, I've sung songs about this. Um, there's churches called this. In fact, the very first church I served out of college when I was youth pastor in Minneapolis was Calvary. Um, shout out to my Minnesota fans. Go Vikings. At any rate, um, but Calvary is a Latin word. Golgotha is an Aramaic word. They, they mean the same thing. It's the same name, just different languages. And Mark tells us that this means place of the skull. In other words, Jesus is literally being crucified on Skull Hill. Legend had it that if you looked at this hill from a certain angle, you could actually see the image of a skull's face in its side. And so even the location of Christ's crucifixion helps to set the stage for us. They arrive at the top, and before nailing Jesus to the cross, Mark tells us that the soldiers offered him wine mixed with myrrh. Now, this was most likely a concoction that was meant to to, to numb or dull Jesus' senses to the crucifixion process because it was very painful and they did not want their victims to struggle. But we're told this, he did not take it. Why? Mark is reminding us here that Jesus will not just endure this death. He chooses it. He embraces it. He will not take the easy way out at any turn. Next, we have the soldiers. Notice in this passage, and when you read it again later, you can see this, how much time Mark gives to describing these men and their role in the crucifixion. They get more like ink time than anyone else. And here's what we learn. They don't just execute their orders. They don't just do what they're told. They 
go a step further. They mock Jesus. They abuse him. They put a robe on him and a crown of thorns and they taunt him and spit on him and strike him on the head. And then before they nail him to the cross, they callously gamble for his clothing. See, they don't just crucify Christ. They make a game of it. Because for these guys, this is just another day's work. Crucifixion is not something real common in our world, not something we're very familiar with, but I'm not exaggerating when I say that these guys did this all the time. This was how Rome killed people, friends, and Rome killed a lot of people. One scholar I read this week says that as many as 30,000 crucified people lined Roman roads during this time period. They just hung them by the roadside and let them stay there as a warning to everyone. Don't mess with us. Next, there are the passers-by, the people of Jerusalem who walk by the scene of Jesus being crucified. These are the same people who are now disappointed. Disappointed that Jesus didn't do for them what they wanted him to do. Disappointed that he didn't rise up and become the Messiah and the king and the revolutionary that they wanted when they hailed him just days earlier. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You were going to destroy the temple, they said. You were going to rid us of all this corruption in our midst. You were going to free us from Roman oppression. That's what we wanted from you. We were counting on you. And now you're just there hanging on a cross. You can't even save yourself let alone us, they say. Then there are the religious leaders. These are the guys who have wanted revenge for a long, long time. They've had it out for Jesus ever since he started challenging their ways and challenging their teachings and challenging their motives and challenging their hearts. And finally, in this moment, they have their pound of flesh. Finally, they have gotten their revenge, but, but even his death is not enough, and so they insist on standing and taunting and mocking him all the way to the very end. You see, here's the thing about vengeance and revenge. It's insatiable. It's never enough. It can never fill the void in your soul. And as if this whole scene isn't Vile and horrific enough, Mark tells us that even the two rebels, even the two convicted criminals that are crucified with Jesus, one on either side, heaped insults on him. They degrade him and disgrace him, even in the midst of their pain, even in their moment of death, even in this moment when any minute now they will meet their maker. That's the scene. That's the setting. And so how do we relate how do we here in comfortable 21st century America, Cedar Mill, Oregon, relate in any way to this scene? You know, one thing that's interesting is how many different characters Mark brings to our attention in this moment. Just a, a very short passage, and yet we meet all sorts of new people. And it's kind of a weird time to start meeting new characters, isn't it? I mean, this is the moment when Jesus will bear the weight of all the sin and all the brokenness and all the injustice of the entire world. And yet, and yet, instead of talking to us about a theology of the cross, Mark seems to say, let me introduce you to some folks who experience this. Let me tell you about some of the people who found themselves face to face with the God of the universe hanging on a cross 
for their sin. And friends, the reason I believe Mark does this is because he gives us these characters. He's offering them to you and to me because he's saying, here's a chance to think about yourselves. Here's a chance for you and me to think about us. Last week in a wonderful message, Pastor Ashley asked, where are you in this story? And in case you struggle with that question, this week Mark is going to give you some examples. He's going to say, perhaps you can see yourself in some of these people. Maybe, just maybe, the cross lands in the middle of your story in a similar way that it did in their story. Let's explore it. First, Simon. Simon of Cyrene, he's living his best life. I mean, he's on vacation in a sense. He's on this amazing trip. On this very day, he is giddy. He is excited for the evening celebration that's ahead, the one that he's looked forward to for oh so long. He is feeling good about where he is and what's happening in his world. Life is good for Simon. And then all of a sudden, his plans get altered. His preparations get ruined. And difficulty and tragedy are forced upon Simon against his will. You see, Simon's not looking for Jesus. He doesn't come to Jerusalem to discover if Jesus was the Christ. He wasn't searching for some spiritual awakening. But now, now, all of a sudden, out of the blue, Simon meets Jesus up close and personal. And now he will have a decision to make. Do I just get on with my Passover celebration? Do I just go back to Cyrene and continue on with life as normal? Or or does encountering Jesus change everything? Maybe that's you. Maybe at one point in your life, even when you weren't looking for him, maybe in this season of life, even though you weren't looking for him, maybe even today, even though you're not here looking for him, you met or will meet Jesus, and that meeting has the power to change everything for you. You see, maybe Simon's story and your story aren't as different as you might think. Or perhaps you can relate to the soldiers. Because let me tell you about these guys. These are men whose, whose lives have made them numb to the injustice and oppression around them. Their job, their daily routine, being soldiers, has made them calloused and cold to the suffering and pain that they see around them every single day. And again, maybe some of us are a lot like them. Our lives, our positions, our status in society has caused us to grow calloused and cold to the suffering and struggle all around us in our world. Maybe just like these soldiers, we don't even see it anymore. And our choice is similar to theirs. After meeting Jesus, will we just continue on? Or will we allow the cross to change us? Will we allow Jesus to soften our hearts and make us more compassionate to the hurt and pain of people around us? Maybe like these soldiers, Jesus wants to do a deep work in you and me. Or maybe you can relate to the religious leaders. None of us really like to see ourselves in the religious leaders, do we? I mean, no one reads the Bible and thinks, I'm kind of like these guys, these hypocritical religious guys. Like, Maybe I'm like them. Let's think about it. No, we don't do that. We don't want to do that. But maybe we should. You see, these guys have spent their entire lives claiming to follow God, 
And they've done so very publicly. They've been telling people for years, we are the godly people. We are the ones who have the answers. We are the good guys, the moral guys, the spiritual guys, the godly guys. And yet, somewhere along the way, their religion became all about comfort and power and superiority, feeling like they were better than everybody else. Somewhere along the way, they forgot about what God sees as righteous and instead embraced a life of self-righteousness. And I have to ask, how about us? Is any of that in us as well? Because the sacrificial serving, consider others better than yourself way of Jesus is threatening to these guys, challenging to these guys, completely undermines their way of following and walking with God. And so maybe some of what the religious leaders need to learn from the cross, you and I still need to learn as well. Then there's the passers-by, the people of Jerusalem. They wanted something from Jesus. They were expecting him to do what they wanted in their way. And now, because he has failed, they are disappointed and they are disenfranchised. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you have been or are in this season disappointed with God. Maybe you feel like you got a raw deal in this world. Maybe you wanted him to work things out in your life in a different way, and he hasn't. And because of that, you are tempted to be angry with him or frustrated with him or hurt or disappointed. And I'll just say this as a quick aside. On some level, that's okay. God can handle your very real and honest emotions, but the, the question really is, what will you do with those emotions? Will you just walk away? Will you just pass by? Will you let those disappointments lead you ultimately away from Jesus? Or will they lead you back to Jesus? You see, maybe we're tempted to be more like the passers-by than we care to admit. And then finally, there are the criminals, guys who in the midst of their own failure, in the midst of their own guilt, in the midst of their own shame, can only think to respond by tearing someone else down. The only way they can feel better about themselves is to feel bad about someone else. You see, it seems not even execution, not even the torture of a cross can humble these men, not even a moment when they will soon face their last breath. And you're thinking, how can I relate to that? Because you're not on death row. <laughs> no one here is facing crucifixion later, I hope. But maybe, maybe, and here's where we might be like them. You've had some hard things in your life. Maybe you've made some bad decisions. Maybe, possibly, you're even dealing with some of the difficult consequences of those decisions. And all that, all that stuff has built a stone wall around your heart out of the need now for self-protection. And the question is, can anything, can anything cut through that stone? Can, can anything soften in your heart and mind and soul what the world has made oh so hard? And this leads to our final question. What is the message? What do we learn from the crucifixion? What do we walk away with? And I want to offer you two things this morning as we close. One, 
Here's the message of the cross. The amazing grace of the cross. We walk away with the amazing, being just absolutely overwhelmed by the amazing grace of the cross. One of the things you have to notice as you read the Gospels is, is how different they are from our human instincts and desires. What we sort of naturally, as fallen, broken human beings want and yearn for, the Gospels push against that. And maybe the best way for me to show you this is to ask, what if this scene, what if the Gospel of Mark was, instead of in the Bible, what if it was a newly released blockbuster movie? We'd have Jesus, the humble hero, born in obscurity, rising up to fight for the common people. Yeah. You know, he's, we are all, we're with him, aren't we? He's doing miracles. He's healing the lame. He's loving the marginalized. He's teaching and demonstrating a radical new way to live. And people are loving him. He's the perfect hero. But then come the villains, right? The religious leaders. And they begin to plot. And then the evil Roman Empire starts to flex its muscles against Jesus to take him down. Dum, 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 da-dum, dum, da-dum. Dum, 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 da-dum, dum, da-dum. And they arrest him unjustly. Dum, 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 dum. And they accuse him falsely. Dum, dum, dum. Oh, stop singing. And they, keep, and they hang him on a cross to die as the music plays. And they spit on him. And they beat him. And they mock him. And all hope seems lost. Now, if this were Star Wars or the latest Marvel movie, if this was an American blockbuster tale, what would happen next? You know, Jesus would summon all of his superpowers and he would use the force and he would come down off that cross to kick their butts. That's what he would do. And we would love it. We would cheer. We would say, yeah, get those dudes. Now you punch them, Jesus, worse than they punched you. Why? Because we love a revenge story. It feels good to us, right? That's our human, broken human instincts. We like it when the bad guys get what they got coming to them. I recently just watched The Count of Monte Cristo, the one with Jim Caviezel. You remember it? Oh, man, at the end when he gets, when it flips around, oh, you got to watch it. I recently just watched one of my favorite movies of all time. Are you with me here? Can I get an amen? The Shawshank Redemption. Oh, remember at the end when Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman flipped that baby around on the evil warden? How good does that feel? I mean, we're like, yes, he's gonna get his. We love that. And so in our world, Jesus would come down and he'd have his revenge. But he doesn't. He just hangs there. He just takes it. And next week, spoiler alert, he dies. Why? How could this be the story? Because Jesus didn't come to defeat his enemies. He came to die for them. He came to die for those soldiers who spit on him and beat him and mocked him. 
He came to die for Simon of Cyrene. He came to die for those who passed by and hurled insults at him. He came to die for the criminals. He even came to die for those religious leaders. You see, friends, that is amazing grace. That's divine forgiveness. That's a different kind of story. And that amazing grace, it's not just offered to them. It's offered to you and to me as well. I don't know if you see yourself in any of these characters, or maybe like me, you see a little bit of yourself in all of them. But either way, the message of the crucifixion is that we all, every single one of us, bring hurt and pain and failure and sin and shortcomings to the cross of Jesus, and that is why it's there. That's why it's there right in the middle of this story, right in the middle of these soldiers and Simon and the religious leaders and the passers-by and the two criminals, right in the middle of their lives and right in the middle of your life and my life is Jesus hanging on a cross for all of us. He came right down into the middle of our mess and loved us even while we were yet sinners. It's the amazing grace of the cross. You have to see it. Second, you have to see the transforming power of the cross. See, sometimes we sell the cross short by when we talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus, we say, yeah, Jesus died and rose to forgive my sins, to pardon me, to erase all my brokenness and failure so I can be right with God. Yes, that's true. It's amazing. We just talked about it, right? But it's also, the cross is also the power to begin to do what's right to become a new person, to be utterly and completely changed. You see, in this moment, as these characters see Jesus hanging on the cross, they're not just offered forgiveness, they are offered the power to be different, to be renewed, to be restored, to be transformed. Those soldiers who beat Jesus mercilessly and drove the nails into his hands and feet, next week we'll discover that one of them says, Surely, this man was the Son of God. And he begins a new life in Christ. We also know that this event had an amazing impact on Simon of Cyrene, that he eventually gives his life to Christ, quite possibly at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when Peter stands up to preach the gospel, and we're told that there were people there from all over the world receiving Jesus. And it says, people from parts of Libya near Cyrene. Oh, who could that be? It's why Mark tells us in verse 21, remember he's talking about Cyrene, he says, Simon of Cyrene carried the cross, and then he has this little thing, he says, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Remember that little part? Did you think it was weird like I thought it was weird? Like the father of Alexander and Rufus, who cares? I'll tell you why he says that. Mark is writing to first century Christians, first century followers of Jesus. They know Alexander and Rufus. Mark is saying, you know the guy whose sons you know? The guy that raised his kids to follow Jesus, that's him. He's the cross carrier. He was there. And it transformed him in every way. We know from the Gospel of Luke that one of these criminals, one of these guys who hurled and heaped insults on Jesus, at some point his hardened heart gets soft and he turns to Jesus and he says, Remember me, Lord. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And what does Jesus say? Truly, I tell you, you can count on it. Today, you will be with me in paradise. We know that many in Jerusalem gave their lives to Christ, and even 
some of the religious leaders, even some of those who were consumed with pious self-righteousness and religion, ultimately, ultimately can't withstand the allure of the gospel and they bend a knee to Christ and they give their lives to him. You see, friends, in a crazy turn of events, it turns out that Mark has been giving us a theology of the cross. And his message, and the message he's offering us is this. The cross offers amazing grace and transforming power. So if you're if you here today and you haven't given your life to Jesus, if you haven't surrendered to him as Lord and Savior and King, hear this, hear this, because this is the theology of the cross. This is the truth of Jesus Christ. No matter who you are, Jesus can save you. No matter what you've done, Jesus can forgive you. No matter where you are, Jesus can reach you. No matter how you feel, Jesus can change you. No matter what you face in this world, Jesus will be with you. See, the message of the crucifixion is is that there is not a person on this planet beyond the redeeming, reconciling, saving, and sanctifying power of the cross of Jesus Christ. That is why we gather here. Because we are those, we are them that were undeserving, that did not deserve God's love or grace, and yet it was offered to us through Jesus Christ. And so we gather as God's people who've been forgiven and empowered, who've been given, offered grace and transformation. And so we gather to remember that. We gather to to thank God for that. We gather to tap into that power again. And Jesus says, this is why when you come together, share this meal. Not Not just to have a religious activity to go through. Not just so that you can kind of check the religion box off in your life, but to really remember. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians. When we share this meal, we remember that he hung on a cross and rose from the grave so that we could be forgiven and utterly transformed. We remember that it's his power, not our goodness. That this is not some like, hey, how to be a better person, 10 rules to follow, like seminar. No. This is a God who loved you even while you were yet a sinner. And we remember that. And then the scriptures say that when we share this meal, we declare it. It says, when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. It's almost like putting a stake in the ground. I am one of his. I was purchased by his blood. His death and resurrection are for me. And so now I walk with no shame or guilt any longer because I have been forgiven. I walk in the power of Christ to be a new creation in this world where I live. That's our declaration today. And this morning... We're going to share communion in a little bit of a different way. I'll confess to you that it it might be because we ran out of the little communion cups, not because we planned it this way. Um, But we're flexible here as the people of God. And so we're going to go to the tables today. We've got tables set up here, here, and then I think three across the back. Um, In a minute, I'm going to dismiss you to go and get your elements and bring them back to your seat, and we will take them together in just a moment. Um, And I do recognize that it is kind of COVID-y times, post-COVID, are we post-COVID or COVID? Who knows, we're COVID. Post, thanks, Timmy. Timmy's all for post-COVID. Well, here's the reality. Some of you may not feel 100% comfortable with that yet. We understand that. Um, we're kind of calling on audible today. We do have a few of the prepackaged communion elements left. And so if you're comfortable kind of taking from the communal tray, do that. If you're not, um, hopefully we'll have enough of the prepackaged 
but I'm going to dismiss you to get your communion elements. We're going to come back and we're going to receive this meal together. But as you go, remember what we're doing. This is not just a routine or a ritual. This is a chance to share a meal and declare together the core truths of the gospel and who we are. And so we'll give you a minute to move to the tables and get your elements. You're dismissed for that.